with us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. What a joy to be together. I'm excited for today. We're actually continuing our series today called Full of Jesus. We're spending time talking about kind of our, uh, our vision as a church and what that means, how that, how that plays out, or how we hope or desire that would play out in the life of the believer. And I'll, and I'll actually say this a little more specifically. Just, just as your pastor, what we're, what we're really talking about today is my prayer for each of you. I, I, I pray for you guys, like, by name often. And, and my prayer for each of you is that the stuff we're talking about in these weeks, that these really would become part of your lived experience of your faith, day to day and moment by moment. That you, the, For whatever time God has you connected to the family at Emmanuel, that during that time, your connection to Christ would grow in these specific areas. And so we come back to this vision statement as a church, as, as Christ pours into you, he pours out of you, or as Jesus pours into you, he pours out of you. And, and I really do, like, I, think it's, I just think it's a beautiful image. It has this imagery, and it's, it's beautiful to reflect on the truth that, that Christ is the, the well of living water that we can go to to, be, to have our spirit truly filled, to, to, to receive real life, and, and the idea that the love of Christ, that the, the gospel of Jesus is so abundantly available that, that we, can, we can be so full of him that it overflows out of us into the world around us, into the relationships around us, into whatever our circle of influence is, right? It's, I, I really do think there's some beauty in that imagery and, and in reflecting on that. But it does raise a really important question, which is essentially like, hey, that's pretty and all, but that is metaphorical, right? So what does that actually mean? What, what does it mean to say you're full of Jesus, that he, that he pours out of you? Like, what does that look like in our actual faith journey, in the actual life we live here and now? And so we've spent the last several weeks trying to, as practically as we can, answer that question. And so we spent a week talking about how to be full of Christ means to live the kind of life where you really do center yourself on the gospel message. That the, the true story that our creator God who made us perfect and desires for us to be in a relationship with him has made a way to defeat what sin has broken. That in sending his son to live a perfect life and die an unjust death and raise from the dead by his spirit and ascend into heaven and one day return and restore all things, that that, that truth, who Jesus is and what he did, actually makes a way for us even in our sin and rebellion, to be restored to God and live in right relationship with, for, with him for eternity, right? Like that gospel story, making that a daily normative part of our rhythm, centering our mental and emotional life around that truth. That's one of the ways we do that, right? And then last week, Pastor Jim did a great job of talking about what it means to, to mortify your sin, to, to kill your sin, to be the kind of person where that gospel story has taken such root in your life that you can, without shame and without guilt, actually draw your sin and draw your idolatry into the light in confession and repentance and see those things killed in your life and see yourself walk in continued growth toward holiness, growth in, in Christ-likeness, right? That, that we can live in those rhythms of bringing those things out into the world without any shame, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done. Today, 
We're going to continue that same discussion about this practical outpouring. What does it mean to be someone who's full of Jesus? And we're going to talk about, kind of in line with that same discussion about mortifying your sin, we're going to talk about what it means to vivify Christ. So the mortification of sin and the vivification of Christ, these are two sides to the same coin. And if you're sitting here going, those are weird terms. <laughs> I've never heard those before. That's fine. Those are weird terms. Uh, but I'm using them because these are really old Christian terms. I mean, you jump back 1,800 years, back to the patristic era, and some of the earliest theologians in Christianity would use these terms, the mortification of sin, the vivification of Christ, to talk about a really normal biblical rhythm within the Christian life, within the kind of life that's seeking to follow Christ, which essentially comes down to this. The mortification of sin, the vivification of Christ, this, are, these are terms that describe our movement as followers of Christ away from our sin, away from our idolatry, away from the effects of the curse, and toward Christ, toward Christ-likeness, toward personal holiness and all those things. That as we seek to follow Christ in this life, we will continually move farther away from the reality of the curse and closer to the reality of Christ until one day when Christ returns and all things are restored and our sin is completely mortified and our relationship to Christ is perfectly and completely vivified, right? But that rhythm is a normal Christian rhythm. That is, that is what the Bible describes of what it looks like to live in this life now as someone who follows after Jesus. But here's, I think, the beautiful thing to this. Even though this is two sides of the same coin, right? Even though this idea of mortifying your sin, vivifying Christ, these are interconnected. You can't separate them. It's not a 50-50 split. You see, when you actually think about the Christian life, the vast majority of it is vivifying Christ. And when I say vast majority, I, there's two thoughts that go into this. The first one is this. Someday Christ will return, and he'll restore all things. And everything that is part of the curse, everything that is idolatry, everything that is sin will be completely wiped away. There will be no suffering. And for eternity, you will be in perfect, complete relationship with Christ. There will no longer be any mortification of sin in heaven. For all of eternity, time without end, all that will be is your vivification, your relationship, your connection to Jesus. But even here on this earth, even in this earthly life, our vivification of Christ, our connection, our emotional, spiritual, relational connection to Jesus is a much larger part of our faith than our, than our mortification of sin, our battling to kill sin. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Battling to kill sin is really important. Confession and repentance, bringing things into the light, seeing your sin killed, seeing yourself drawn farther, like th that's very important. But imagine, if you will, if that was the entirety of your faith journey in this life. Like, that would be really burdensome, right? If 100% of your faith journey was constantly being drawn back to the reality of your sin, the reality of how you fall short, the reality of the way the world has hurt you, the reality of the, the gross things that are in your heart, and it was just this constant battle of, oh my gosh, I'm so terrible, I'm not good enough, I've got to constantly battle these things, and that was just it? I mean, that would be discouraging. <laughs> that would be sorrowful. That would be, that would be a burden, right? And again... Those things are important. They're an important part of your faith journey. But they're not the majority of it. In fact, what I would say is that the majority of your lived experience 
of the Christian faith here and now in this life is vivifying Christ. The majority of what you do, of how you experience your, your, your salvation in this life as you live and breathe, as you leave this space and you go to work and you hang out with your family and neighbors and all those things, is your vivification of Christ. It's the majority of it. And man, I'll tell you something. That's wonderful. It's wonderful for one simple reason. Connecting to Christ is amazing. Like you were made to connect to Christ. Christ's heart for you, Christ, when, when, when Jesus thinks of you, it's love. Christ's heart for you is, is care, is compassion, it's, it's intimacy, it's, it's love like we can't imagine. And beloved, you were built for that. It is, it is born down into your DNA. We don't, we don't connect with Christ to earn our salvation. We don't connect with Christ to get away from our guilt and shame. We don't connect with Christ to change our standing with him. No, 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 no. All that work has been accomplished by Jesus on the cross. That's the gospel. You connect with Christ because Christ loves you. And connecting with him is wonderful. Beloved, Jesus is the lover of your soul. He cares for you with a love and a compassion that is unfathomable. He's so good. He's so good. Connecting with him is what, it's the best thing. It's the best thing. Of course, it's something that we would long to do daily. To actually build in to the rhythms of our life. Vivifying Christ is the primary way that your faith becomes a lived experience here and now. So let's get into it. We're going to be in John 15 today. If you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles there. By the way, we're really passionate about access to God's Word here at Emmanuel. If you're here today and don't have a Bible with you, we have a house Bibles underneath the rows. You're welcome to grab one. If you don't own a physical copy of God's Word, I would strongly encourage you to just, just snag one of those and take it home. Or even better, uh, talk to one of the pastors and we will get you one with slightly larger print. <laughs> anyway, as you're turning there, John 15, I'll say this really quick. I have a love-hate relationship with gardening. Stick with me. It makes sense. Stick with me. I love gardening. I actually really do. I know that's weird. I find it very life-giving, getting outside in creation and, like, getting your hands dirty and accomplishing. And when I say gardening, by the way, like, I mean, like, planting veggies and fruit and things like that. Like, I just, I love, like, I had, when Kim and I were first married, we had several raised garden beds and fruit trees and things like that. And I just, I find a lot of joy in that and getting out there and doing that work. And at the end of it, like, at the end of it, there's, there's fruit that's born. You can bring your tomatoes inside and have fresh BLTs. You know, like, there's something about that that's just like, it's just really life-giving and I really enjoy it. But then I had kids, so I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Except I do. Except I don't. See, this is the problem. Uh, you can talk to Kim about this. This is a source of I'm sure just tons of sanctification for her. But in our house, every like February to March to April, at some point there's a conversation. We're sitting at dinner and I'm like, I'm gonna go Lowe's. And she's like, no, you're not. Yeah, I am. I'm gonna go Lowe's and I'm gonna get, and I just list off and she goes, no, you're not. Let's not do that. This is a waste of time and money. And I'm like, no, I really am. And I do. 
Every year, I go, I buy something, I buy some form of plant with beautiful grand intentions, and then it sits in my driveway until it's almost dead, and then I finally go and plant it, and the moment I get that thing in the ground, it is 100% on that plant from the rest of the time on. There's no more help for me. It's like, but I got you in the ground. The rest of this is on you. You now have to do the work. We're laughing. Literally, this week, I planted two cherry trees in my yard and have not touched them. Like, I gave, like I've got them in the ground, I gave them their root stabilizer, all that jazz, and then was like, the rest is on you, bud. Godspeed to you. And I just left. I just left, it's terrible. And here's the thing, I just don't have time for it, right? It takes time, it takes effort, it takes intentionality to cultivate these things, but I love it, so I constantly like kind of come back to it. And the one thing I've done that's kind of worked is we've been in our current house seven years, and year by year, slowly, I'm very slowly building a little micro orchard in my backyard of apple trees. I love apple trees. And so I put a new one in each year, and I go and I take the time, and I groom them, and I cut them, and I do all this jazz. And I've got one I'm really proud of. This is my, my Wolf River apple tree. Isn't he cute? He's like this tall one I put him in. And it's still alive. It's like such a miracle in my yard. I love this thing. I love this tree. I like actually really do put effort into caring for this tree. Now, I say I put effort. I mean like 5% of the effort actually required to care and cultivate for fruit trees. But I do. I go out and in February I trim, trim the branches off and I remulch it and do all this different stuff. You know, I put the little, little fence up so the deer wouldn't kill it and all, all, all those important, good, beautiful things. Now, this thing has not borne fruit yet. <laughs> uh, mm. But it, you know what, what's amazing? It might. <laughs> it might. I got some pollinators around it. And this is the first year that the other pollinators have been big enough that like, you know, you know it, it's going to bloom in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> it hasn't borne fruit for me yet. But this, this might be the year, right? Like, this, we'll, we'll see. I'm not going to help, but we'll see if it gets there. And here's what I love about it. I love this tree. If you know anything about Wolf River apple trees, they're one of the largest domesticated North American apple trees. They grow huge. They have big old huge apples like the size of a baby's skull. This thing wants to grow big and grow tons of apples. It wants to. It's built for it. If someone was actually cultivating this thing, it would be going to town, right? This thing is made to grow big and grow lots of apples. And despite, in spite of my horrific caretaking, it's still like nine feet tall. It's still doing its best, right? I love that about this apple tree. It was built for this. It was built for this. And in spite of having me as its gardener, it's still doing its best. It's still inching along year by year, getting there. Keep that in the back of your head. And let's read John 15. In John 15, starting in the first verse, we read this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. He prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Now, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he, and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. 
If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. So remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, church. Father, we ask this morning as we take a few minutes to just sit and reflect on this text that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, please be our discipler. Do the ministry you say you do. Teach us, remind us, convict us, encourage us. Let us hear from you what our hearts actually need today. And Lord, let us leave this space today having met with you in an intimate way, in a way that our hearts actually need. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for these things. So we pray them in your name. Amen. So let's put this passage in its context and see where it takes us. So we're reading in the book of John. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four gospels. These four books in the New Testament each essentially tell the same story. They they tell the story of Jesus's life and his mission and his ministry. And each of them tell that same story from a slightly different perspective, with slightly different kind of focus or nuance. John is interesting amongst the four gospels because he's, he's just unapologetically the most theological in his telling of Jesus' story. You have to remember, by the time John wrote, it was the last of the four written, by the time John wrote, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all readily available to the church. And so as John looked out, he's like, we don't need another biography. We got plenty of those. So I'm going to dig into some of the theology of Jesus's teaching. And the way that comes out is that John puts a whole lot of emphasis on Jesus's words and certain conversations in ways that you just don't see in the other gospels. The main way we see that is that John spends more time on the last week of Jesus's life and specifically the last night of Jesus's life than any of the other gospel writers. In fact, John 13 through 17, the entire section is one conversation that Jesus has with his followers while they walk from the Last Supper, from dinner, outside the city to the Mount of Olives, to the garden where Jesus prays. So we're smack dab in the middle of that section. This long, extended look at basically the last intimate conversation Jesus has with his friends before his arrest and before everything begins, right? I love this section. And we, and we see so much of Jesus' heart for his, for his followers, for his friends, for his church in this section of scripture. I would encourage you this week, go read this whole chunk beginning to end. Read it in one sitting and just see what, G, what, 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 what sticks out to you of Jesus' heart. When I read this text, I come back continually to just, just the deep affection that is so obvious of just how much Jesus loves these friends. And so I want to do this. Let's put ourselves, let's take a minute to kind of mentally put ourselves in this scene. So at this point, Jesus has been traveling with his followers for literal years. They're in Jerusalem. They're in the big city. They don't come here often. They're celebrating Passover. We have the Last Supper, and it's this really beautiful, but also really, really weighty scene 
right? They, they share this Passover meal together. And Jesus, like, he does this strange thing where he washes their feet and tells them about how, how deeply he loves them and how he doesn't consider them, like, just to be his students and he's their teacher, but, like, he considers them his friends. And he loves and serves them in this way. And they celebrate this beautiful meal. But then they find out, he tells them that one of them is going to betray him that very night. But then after that, he, he takes the Passover meal and connects it to the covenant and his messianic ministry. And, and it's just, there's a lot going on, right? But what I love about this is that the scene ends, that scene ends with they sing some hymns and then take a walk. And there's something about that that I just... I just love that idea, right? Like, you've got all these friends. They've been living together, traveling for several years. They're in the big city celebrating this holiday. There's a lot going on. It's weighty, but it's also joyful. There's all this excitement and also a lot of anxiety. But they come together, they eat a meal, they sing some songs, and they go take a walk. Now, I don't know if that part resonates with you, but there's part of my own, like, I really connect with this part of the story. So I went to, I did my undergrad at Lindenwood University uh, here in St. Louis. And, and, and we would do this thing that, you know, I think is just kind of normal when you're like 19 years old and single and have too much free time. But we'd all be hanging out, our circle of friends, and it might be one in the morning, and we'd just go, hey, let's go to Fifth Street. And we would just like have this little mob of us, and we would just walk from the campus to some part of St. Charles and hang out and chat and enjoy. Because that's just what you do, right? Like when you're 19 or 20 and have tons of free time. And so this image of Jesus and his followers walking through the city at night, talking. There's something about that that like, my heart kind of connects to that immediately. I can, really, I can really picture that, right? They just shared this big meal. They're walking along. There's this mixture of excitement and anxiety as they're chatting. And what you see in Jesus' words to them is I really think you just like, it's like Jesus is trying to cram in and remind them of all his love and affection for them. It's like, I mean, obviously he knows what's coming, right? And he knows this is his last chance to reiterate to them what's going on before it happens. So then there's something really beautiful about these words. And what you see in it, if you look at this text as a whole, is you see Christ, like, he really plainly warns them, like, I'm, I'm about to die. Things are about to go bad. I'm not going to be here anymore. You guys are going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. But he, he comes back to these ideas of going, but listen, I'm with you. You can still be connected to me. My spirit will always be with you. You can always be connected. Make sure you love each other and care for each other, right? And then he ends it, he ends it by praying for his friends, praying for all of his followers, and then praying for the church to come, praying for us. That's how this text ends, is Jesus praying for you and for me. And you really see, just again, it just the theme of this whole chunk is just affection. You just see Christ's care for his friends and his followers. Now, something that's interesting about this whole larger chunk of text that we can easily miss, and it has to do with this. We structure the way we speak and write a little differently than the Jewish folk did. For us, as, as modern Westerners, when we write something or when we say something, we tend to take our main point and we put it right at the front and then right at the end. We kind of bookend a chunk with our main point. We open with our main point and then we build an argument leading back up and we end with our main point. Well, Jewish writers did the exact opposite. They would take their main point and put it smack dab in the middle. And so they would start by building up and building their argument toward the main point. And then once they made the main point, then they would circle back and remake all of their initial arguments as they wind their way down. And the middle, the middle 
is, is kind of where the main heart of any piece of speech or writing was usually put. Jesus does this most of the time when he teaches in the Gospels and when he speaks. And we see that in our text today. Our text today sits square in the middle of this final chunk of conversation Jesus has with his followers. And when you think about everything that builds into this scene, friends enjoying a night, walking through the town, the wait, Jesus knows what's going on, him trying to give them all these final instructions, him encouraging them, but also warning them of what's to come, him pre- all those things. And in the heart of all of it is a metaphor that Jesus gives about gardening. Right? What kind of a strange thing to put at the heart of it? I am the vine, and you are the branches. This is the heart of this whole conversation. Now, this isn't as strange as it might seem on the surface. This was a piece of imagery that was really worked into the Jewish consciousness at this point. You know, going back to the time of the prophets, when, when God was, was warning and moving towards judgment on Israel for their sin, this analogy was actually used several times by the prophets, this idea that God is the vine dresser and Israel is the vine. And the reason that made sense is because if you've ever cared for a grapevine, you have to care for it a long time before it bears fruit. Some of the variants of grapes that the ancient Israelites used would take a decade or more of cultivation before they would bear any fruit. And so the prophets used this analogy for ancient Israel saying, look, God's been caring for you for a long stinking time and you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You better get on it. You better return to covenant or there will be consequences, right? And so that was kind of using it as like a warning of like coming judgment. But what happened was this image of Israel as this vine and God as this gardener who tends for the vine really worked its way into the Jewish consciousness and their other self-understanding. That by the time you get to the first century, by the time Jesus is on the scene, this image of Israel as the grapevine and God as the, as the vine dresser had really become connected to this messianic hope that God was actively tending Israel and he would send his Messiah to restore all things and fruit would be born. And this was so much so part of the culture by this point that Herod's temple, right? This is the, the big temple that was in Jerusalem at this time. At the entrance to Herod's temple, they did a massive public works fundraiser centered around grapevines. As they were finishing off the temple, they said, hey, we're going to build a big grapevine at the entrance to the temple. And if you're wealthy, you can donate to it we'll put a gold leaf with your name on it on the vine. Which like really, like if you grew up in church, doesn't something about that make your eye twitch? (laughs) But they did. And so by Jesus's day, there's this like 30, 40 foot tall gold and brass grapevine that was woven up and around these columns covered in these leaves that had names engraved in them with these large glass grape clusters. It was really beautiful included in all the histories that talk about this temple, and had the 12 names of the 12 tribes engraven on different parts of it surrounding the grape clusters. This is something that's really wound its way into the Jewish consciousness. And I love that because it just puts some flavor into this scene, right? You can imagine it's nighttime, it's late, Jesus and his friends have shared this big meal. They're walking through the city. They're chatting and talking as they normally do. And you know, the texts tell us that when they were in Jerusalem, when they would come to the temple, that Jesus' followers, they would, they would revel in the temple. I mean, it was a wonder of the world. It was this beautiful thing. And you can, you can almost imagine that, right? As they're, as they're wandering along and they wander by and they see this huge thing and his followers are talking about it in the back and the forth. And the man, 
man, this is so exciting because God is set, like the vine dresser is going to tend the vine, the, the Messiah is here. And then you just kind of get Jesus go, well, actually, actually, I am the vine. I am the vine. And you are the branches. Now, by the way, that's like a little bit of holy imagination. We don't know where in the walk they had this conversation. But the point is, Jesus takes this image and grabs a hold of it and says, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's wrong. Actually, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And then he digs through all this imagery and talks through it. And I love it because it's, it is like rich imagery, but you, like, you can be my level of gardener and still understand what Jesus is getting at here, right? It's, it's, very, it's very straightforward metaphor. I am the vine and you are the branches. And if branches don't bear fruit, they will be cut off. And if branches do bear fruit, they'll be pruned and cared for and cultivated so they can bear more fruit. And he starts talking about his connection to his followers. And there's a whole lot here, and I'll, and I'll pick through a couple of the pieces that I think are important for us. But the big picture of this metaphor that I think is really important for us today is that what, look, at, look at Jesus' concern with the whole conversation. He knows he's getting ready to leave. He's giving his last instructions. He's, he's trying to remind his followers of his care, his affection for them. And he says, listen, it is so vital for you to be connected to me. You have to remain connected to me. If you're not connected to me, you're toast. You can't do anything. All the, the beautiful things God has for you, all the stuff I'm calling you to all the things you participated in. You can't do that if you're not connected to me. So stay connected to me. Here's what I love about that. Jesus knows he's about to leave. And so implied in what he's saying is that when he leaves, his followers can still be connected to him. Right? And I love this. I think this is so important for us. Because right now, they're taking a walk through the city. That night, they shared a meal. They ate food together. They talked. They laughed. They sang. But come a couple months, they won't be sharing meals with Jesus. They won't be taking nighttime walks through the city. They won't be singing songs together. He will not be bodily present with them. But he says, stay connected to me. Which means beloved of Jesus, that even though Christ is not bodily present, you can be connected to him. There's so much hope in that. So it's, I think, and hopefully, this brings you back to a similar question we've already asked, right? It's like, okay, that's beautiful. Like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Like, like I would love to be connected to Jesus. So what does that actually mean? Like, how do I how do, I, how do I do that? Because Jesus just used another metaphor, right? It's a beautiful metaphor. I can, I can see it. I can see why it came up. But what does that look like? It's a really important question. So let me, let, let, let me answer it, but let, let me take just a second to get there. I want to answer this as clearly as I can. And so to get there, let me give us a couple thoughts, a couple implications, I think, that exist in this metaphor Jesus uses. And that, that'll bring us, I think, around to this to this really practical answer that I think will be helpful. The first thing I, see, I think we see in Jesus' consideration, his instruction for his followers, 
is that staying connected to Jesus is not what actually saves. You know, he goes out of his way to say, this doesn't make you clean. You're already clean, right? It's important to note this, that it's, that it's not our efforts to be emotionally, spiritually, relationally connected to Christ that give us salvation. No, it is Christ's accomplished work on the cross. It's Christ's person, his work. That is what saves you. He is the one who makes your salvation. But, but, doing the work, building the rhythms into your life of relationally connecting to Christ, emotionally, spiritually, all those things, that allows you to actually, in your day-to-day life, experience the reality of your salvation. That's an important nuance. He's the one that does the work. Connecting to him doesn't save you. But if you're not connecting to him, what will you experience of that salvation in your day-to-day life? Here and now, right? Like when you get up for work tomorrow. I think the second thing we see in this text is that staying connected to Christ, doing the work of having the rhythms of emotionally, relationally, spiritually connecting to Christ actually will push us to grow in holiness. And he says that the branches that are connected to him that bear fruit will be pruned, they'll be cultivated to bear more fruit. God will work, if you're connected to Christ, you will see him working in your life to kill your idolatry, to to kill your sin, to draw you farther from the reality of the curse and closer to the reality of his perfection for you. Like that sanctification that he does happens, you experience it in the context of your connection to him. Which I think, I think brings us to this, this and, I, and by the way, really quick, because this is a part of this text that can easily trip people up. Jesus uses this beautiful imagery of prayer to kind of exemplify this. Where he says, man, if you're connected to me, you will become more like me. You just will. This is, like, this is amazing. Like, when you connect with Christ, when you do the work of having the rhythm of relationally, spiritually, emotionally connecting to him, it's not as if your sinfulness and unrighteousness rubs off on Christ. It, it, it doesn't work that way. It's the opposite. His righteousness and perfection rubs off on you. The more time you spend with him, the more you become like him. So much so that when you're connected to Christ long enough, your prayers will begin to be so synced up to the heart of God. Listen, guys, when you are praying the heart of God, the will of God, it will come to bear. It will come to fruition. And so as you stay connected to me, even your prayers will become like my prayers, right? Which I think leads us to this, this third part that's so beautiful as he says, and if you're connected to me, you'll bear much fruit. And what's that fruit? Well, that's, that's, that's the idea that as we're connected to Christ, we get to experience working with him to accomplish his mission. Jesus' mission to go into the world and seek and save the lost. Listen, Christ will accomplish that with or without you. He is out and about doing his work, advancing his church, resurrecting dead souls. Like That's what Jesus does. But when we do the work to build the rhythms in our life, to relationally, emotionally, spiritually connect with Christ, we get to join him in that work. We get to see those things happen. We get to bear witness to dead lives being resurrected, to people being freed from the bondage of of addiction and destructive ways the curse has affected their life. Like We get to bear witness to those things when we're connected to Christ. Our lives will bear fruit as we're connected to the true vine. Love those things. Now, again, we're still in the realm of metaphor, right? 
So how do we actually do this? What's the thing we do to stay connected to Christ, to have our branch connected to the true vine? Well, in John chapter 5, when asked about the work of being a believer, Jesus says this, this is the work of God. This is the work you should do. That you believe in the one he has sent. This is the work of the believer, to believe. Believe Christ is who he says he is. Believe he has accomplished what he said he's accomplished. Okay, all right, that's simple, I get that. Here's the problem. You can't just flip a switch and make yourself believe something. That's not like, that's not like a, con- like I can't just go, hey guys, did you know gravity isn't real? And you go, oh cool, I believe that. You can't do that. You could say that, but you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it because your brain is constantly observing the world around you. And it would take those observations and go, no, I think you're nuts. I think gravity's real. And you may consciously choose to say, yeah, I believe you, there's no gravity. But you wouldn't believe it in your heart. You can't just consciously switch a belief on or off in your mind. That's not how God designed human minds. How do you believe something? You observe it. You spend time with it. If someone says, I love you, you may or may not believe it when they say it. Why may you or may not you believe it, right? Well, you're going to think about all the observations you have of that person. You're going to run those through your mind, and you're going to go, yeah, I believe that, or oh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. I mean, think, imagine, especially if you just met that person, right? They go, man, I love you. You're going to be like, I don't know about that. <laughs> but you spend some time with that person, you spend enough time with that person and they keep saying that, man, I really love you. At some point, you will believe it or not believe it, right? At some point, you will gather enough data. You will have observed enough to know what's going on there. So when Christ says, here's what I want you to do, believe in me. Believe I am who I say I am. Believe that I've accomplished what I say I've accomplished. Believe that my gospel is true. You can't just go, Yes, gospel equals true, done. You can't do that. Your brain doesn't work that way. If you want to believe the gospel of Jesus, you have to spend time with Jesus. You have to hang out with him. You have to connect relationally and observe. See how he treats you. See how he treats the world around you. See how his followers live and act. You spend time with him and you'll grow in belief or disbelief, period. It's how your brain works. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus has already told us, even though I'm not here bodily, you can still connect with me. You can still spend time with me. You don't have to be with someone physically and bodily to get to know them. We know that's true. Imagine, like, do, do this with me. Imagine, imagine a young bride-to-be, and she's engaged to a military man, and he gets a deployment in the middle of their engagement. And so for 8, 10, 12, 18 months he's going to be on the other side of the planet. And so that wedding date has to be pushed off until he gets back, right? And so they're going to live that season opposite sides of the planet from one another engaged. Are they going to be able to stay connected during that time? Yeah. Yeah, they are. They absolutely are. And you go, well, they're not going to be able to have date nights and take walks to the city. And con-. No. But they'll take the means that are available to them and they'll connect. They'll write letters to each other. They'll send emails. They'll send text messages. And you know what? I'm pretty much guaranteed that if they're in love, they will send those written communications and they'll read them more than once. 
If he's writing her letters, I guarantee she's reading them and reading them often and getting to know what those words say and what they mean and thinking about them. And when she gets an email that he's got some free time and he wants to do a FaceTime, but it's going to be like 3 a.m. her time, you know what she's going to do? She's going to get up at 3 a.m. and be tired at work so that she can spend some time on FaceTime and see her bridegroom. And they're going to do what they need to do to stay connected. So that when he gets back and when they're reunited, they're not starting over from scratch. They're already connected. They already know each other, right? I mean, we, like that's, that's what love does. Love does the work necessary. Love makes the sacrifices necessary to build in rhythms of connection. Relational, emotional, spiritual. That's what love does. And beloved, Jesus is the lover of your soul. He's the one who loves you like you can't imagine. And so yeah, he's not here physically right now. You can't go out and share dinner together or take a walk to the city at night or sing songs together. You can't do that right now. One day you'll be able to, but you can't right now. But he will come back and you will get to. But right now, what do you have? How do you relate to Jesus? How do you spend enough time with him to be able to believe he is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done? Listen, I'm about to do the most stereotypical thing a pastor can ever do from the pulpit. I'm going to tell you to read your Bible. Because he's left words for you. And just like that bride-to-be would read over those letters over and over and over and over and over, beloved, the lover of your soul has written to you. So read it. Spend time with it. Get to know what it says. Read it over and over and over the way a bride-to-be would read the love letter from her bridegroom. Pray. Pray, talk, speak. Speak to the Spirit. Jesus said, my Spirit will be with you. So talk to Him. Communicate. Tell Him to ask Him to speak through, like, to you through the Word. Spend time speaking to Jesus. Sharing your heart with Him. Spend time with the church, with brothers and sisters in Christ. The scripture says, are the hands and feet, the physical representation of Christ in this world. And see his care and affection for you as your brothers and sisters give you care and affection. Beloved, there are real ways for you to be connected to Jesus here and now. And they are as simple as that. Spend time in the word. Spend time speaking to him, sharing your heart with him. Spend time with brothers and sisters, experiencing his hands and his feet, his tangible love and affection for you. Beloved, spend time with Jesus. I'm telling you something. You will come to love him. You will come to believe him. Because who Jesus says he is, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of your soul, What Jesus says he's done, accomplished his work on your behalf, the truth of the gospel, is real. It represents the deepest truth of reality. And if you spend time with that, you will come to believe it. You will. But here's the trap. Here's the trap. You see, even if we spend time with Jesus, we can spend time with him wrongly. We can spend time with him where we, we even do, like we build rhythms into our life 
of connecting through the word and through prayer and through church, but they're not, they're not the right forms of connection. This is a weird nuance, but stick with me on this. This is where we're going to land today. I think this is important for us. And I'll, just, I'll lead on to this by being confessional. It's really easy for me to not meet with Jesus as the lover of my soul. It's really easy for me to meet with Jesus as a coworker. And here's what I mean by that. Not every week, but a lot of weeks, I got to get up here and preach. And if it's bad, there's a good amount of people who will notice, right? And who will tell me. So, I live my life with this constant timer. The next time I got to have a sermon, the next time I got to stand at this pulpit, and it's got to be good. It's got to be gospel. It's got to feed the flock, and it's got to change lives. And so it's really easy for me to approach Jesus and go, all right, bud, we got to get this thing done and serve your church. Help me figure this thing out. Let's make sure this one's a banger. Let's make sure this one is actually impacting people's lives. And I can approach Christ like a coworker. We have a shared goal we need to accomplish together. I think many of us, many of us who actually even do have these regular rhythms of engaging Christ, don't engage him as the lover of our soul, but we engage him more like our insurance adjuster, our accountant, right? Like I've got to go through and accomplish these certain tasks. I've got to make sure I check these correct boxes to like show that I am a good, holy person. Like I need to make sure I attend this church programming and like I have my reading plan and it's going to get posted online to the YouVersion app and people are going to give me like congratulations stickers. So I got to make sure I read my 1.5 chapters every day so that after 18 months, I'll read through the whole Bible and it'll like post. And we can do that as this way of checking off boxes to feel like, look, like I am a good Christian. I do the Christian things I'm supposed to do. But at that point, like that kind of relational connection, it's a relational connection, but that's to be honest, that's a lot closer to how you relate to your accountant at tax time than it is to how you relate to your lover. And beloved, Jesus is the lover of your soul. He's not your coworker. He's not your accountant. He's not your insurance adjuster. Beloved, he is crazy in love with you. That's why I call you beloved, church. Because at the, at the end of the day, that is your core identity. You are the beloved of the God of the universe. Jesus is crazy about you. He loves you. He has deep, abiding affection for you. He longs for you with care, with compassion, with affection. Do you know that? Like in your bones, in, in the deepest core of your person. And when Christ looks upon you, you in your sin, you with your idolatry, you with all the ways the curse has affected you and all the ways that you've joined in to the curse, when Christ looks upon you, he sees his beloved. He's crazy about you. Your picture's already in his wallet. He has affection for you. And hear this, church. Hear this. Chris, you can actually come up. I'm going to land. You were made for this. This is how God made you. You were built from the DNA up to be a recipient of this love. You were hardwired to be connected the lover of your soul. He, he designed you for this. So when we get to pursue Christ 
when we get to build these rhythms into our life of connecting with him, you need to hear this part, guys. Like, this is the primary way that your faith becomes a lived experience here and now. Your salvation is huge. It's cosmic, right? It's a big thing. You have justification before a righteous and holy God in Christ and your sins have been washed away and you'll be ushered into eternal, perfect relationship with him. Like those are all real and heavy and big cosmic things, but they're also right here and right now, very intangible. What is tangible right here and right now is that Jesus loves you and longs to connect with you. And you can connect with him. You can spend time with him. You can hear his heart for you repeated to you over and over and over. You can read his words and hear his affection for you over and over and over. You can spill out your guts and your heart to him in prayer over and over and over and receive his love, his forgiveness, his acceptance over and over and over. And you can spend time with your brothers and sisters and and receive the physical expression of his love and care for you over and over and over every day in this life, here and now. It's the primary way your faith becomes a lived experience on this side of eternity. It's through this vivification of Christ. These rhythms of relationally, emotionally, spiritually connecting to Jesus. Beloved, you were made for this. You were made for this. Your Jesus loves you like crazy. I mean, guys, he made you. He designed you. He he wove together your DNA. He, you cook. Colossians 1 tells us that it's by his pleasure that the very atoms that make up the molecules, that make up the cells, that make up the tissue, that make up your body continue to exist. That it is at his joy and his pleasure that you live and breathe. He loves you. He's crazy about you. Not your accountant. Not your coworker. He loves you. With a love you can't fathom. So, beloved, let us, let us run to Jesus. Let us be a people who run to him, who seek him out, who actually spend our time with him. Run to the lover of your soul and find his rest and find his forgiveness and find his peace and find his purpose and find his life. And above all, beloved, find the love that you were actually made for an apple tree that longs to make apples. You are a human soul that longs to be loved and love your creator. Chris is going to sing a song. I'm going to encourage you guys to do what you need to do with Christ in these next few moments. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time singing. I'll just say this. We're going to have our pastors around the room if you guys want to position yourselves for the next couple minutes. And if you need someone to pray with you today, if you're just at a place where you just need some help, you need someone else to say those words and help you reconnect to Christ, I would encourage you. Get up and go grab one of your pastors. We would love to pray with you. But let's take a few minutes and let's run back to Jesus. And let's just experience the love and affection he has for us.